hesitation or reluctance join the whole of the creation in lifting our voices in praise to you. Forgive us that we're, that we're too often too reluctant. And please set before us the wonder of your goodness and grace so that our hearts might be more and more full, our eyes more and more blinded by the dazzling radiance of your glory, your goodness and your grace. And use these gifts that the gospel of your grace would be sounded forth here in this place, in this community, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I promise you we're finished with chapter 1 today. We're going to look at these last uh, several verses, beginning at verse 24, reading through the end of the chapter. And um, even as we look at those verses, we're going to be looking uh, back at some of the verses that have preceded it. So this is a little bit like collecting fragments. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, there was stuff left over. We've been looking at this thing, trying to be fed by it, and there's some, there's some stuff left over, if you will, some fragments that we want to kind of collect and, and pull together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And let me just, um, let me just remind you as we come to this um, that we're looking at this first major section of Paul's letter. And in this part of this letter, uh, he is, uh, he's, he's trying to persuade us, reason with us, show us that the problem of sin is universal and pervasive. It's wide and it's deep. It goes everywhere and it goes way down. Um, It's it's the problem of sin. It's the three-letter word that's a four-letter word that we don't want to use, that we don't like to talk about, but it's where he begins. And what Paul is going to do as he does this uh, is address, as he has been doing, he's, he's going to address a particular group of people. It's really important that you remember that Paul is writing as a pastor. He's not writing a theological essay for seminary students. Okay, he's not, he's not in an ivory tower someplace just, just sort of spinning stuff out of his head. He's, he's addressing real people who live at a real place in real time. Now, the wonderful thing about the Word of God is that while Paul is addressing real people who live at a real place in real time, this Word is for us, real people living in this real place in this real time as well. That's... That's the wonder and the beauty of this thing. We're not just reading history. We're reading something that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the thing that he's beginning with is this problem of sin. Uh, And that is the real issue that plagues us, folks. It plagues me. It plagues you. It plagues the whole society. And it's a two-fold thing. And as we make our way through this letter, we're going to see Paul addressing both aspects of it. Um, he's going to address the twofold aspect of sin, that sin leaves us guilty before God and it leaves us in bondage, both of those things. And as Paul writes this, his hope, his heart's desire, his prayers, uh, his whole efforts, uh, as he has wandered all over Asia Minor, as he writes this letter, his whole concern is to set before the Romans and anybody else who will live and live, who will listen is to set before them the hope of the gospel against the backdrop of this problem. So that's, that's where we are. And as we read this, let me give you three things, three things that we're going to draw from this. The first one will take most of our time. The last two will take a shorter amount of time. But here are the three things from this first 
chapter, this first part of this first section, what you have first is a picture of sadness. You have a picture of sadness. The second thing is the prospect for change. And then the third thing is a pattern for ministry. A pattern for ministry. So a picture of sadness, a prospect for change, and a pattern for ministry. So read with me Romans 1, beginning at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, what reason? That they, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God, help us as we struggle to understand his word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help. We need your help. Um, I'm just so mindful of uh, the strong tonic that this passage of Scripture is. And so we ask you as a God of, uh, of uh, mercy and grace and help that you'd give us your spirit again so that we can hear this word and believe it, certainly learn from it, but most importantly, really and truly be changed by it. Um, please be with us. Uh, help us to those ends. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the first thing, what you have in these verses is a picture of sadness. It's a picture of sadness. The last couple of weeks, we've been asking questions about the wrath of God. Uh, we've asked, uh, how do you define it? What is it? Uh, you've asked, we've asked, where is it revealed? Paul says that it's being revealed in verse 18. It's being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Uh, we've asked the question, how is it revealed? Why is it revealed? Uh, again, the wrath of God is the holy revulsion of God's soul against toward everything that is contrary to his nature. Everything that is contrary to his nature. That's That's a good definition of what the wrath of God is. You can think of it... Uh, in terms of justice, you can think of it uh, in terms of God's response to lawlessness, to law-breaking, whether it's external law-breaking uh, or, or the kind of internal law-breaking that our hearts are guilty of so often, so frequently. It's God's justice. It's, it's the expression of his righteousness, the expression of his righteous character against everything that is contrary to his nature. Uh, we've talked about where it's re- re- revealed. It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Wherever God is excluded from consideration, wherever God is no longer the central, chief, illuminating, enabling, 
to-be-glorified factor in human thinking, wherever God is pushed to the periphery and beyond, that is godlessness. That is ungodliness. We, again, let me just say this. We tend to think of ungodliness in sort of narrow moral categories. But ungodliness, godlessness, is exactly what it says it is. It is to remove God from consideration. And wherever God is removed from consideration, God who is infinitely glorious, who is worthy of praise, and this is a whole thing to be discussed and talked about uh, in itself. It's a sermon in itself. God is worthy of praise. He is worthy to be honored. He is the one true God. And, and not only is that true about him, but he cares about that fact. It sounds self-absorbed, narcissistic, and self-indulgent, but here's how you need to think about it. If there isn't anybody else in the universe who will care that it is right for God to be worshipped and glorified, God will care about it because he cares about what is right and good. And it is right and good to worship the one true God who is really there, who is infinite in glory and majesty and all of these other things, these things that are revealed in the creation. Wherever God has moved to the periphery, that is godlessness. It can be very polite. It can be very moral. It can be very upstanding. And it can be thoroughly godless. We understand that? And unrighteousness is simply the lifestyle, the way of living that flows out of that. And again, the lifestyle can be very moral. It can be very upstanding. It can be very polite. Or it can be very immoral and of low standing and very impolite. But God's wrath is being revealed against this. And what is it that God does? How is it that God reveals his wrath? He reveals his wrath by restraining his hand, his guiding, careful, loving hand of restraint. He withdraws, and he does it actively. the, The verb again in the text is an active verb. He gives people over actively. Basically, what Paul is saying is that the whole of humankind, Jew, Gentile, everybody alike, apart from Christ, the whole of the human race has said, we would rather live without you. We would rather live without you. We would rather do this on our own. We would rather dethrone you, enthrone ourselves. We would rather rule life, run life, order life, figure life out by ourselves. And the essence of God's Judgment upon humankind when humankind makes that decision, as humankind has done from Adam and Eve down to the very present day, even though the evidence for the existence of God and the character of God is imprinted upon everything that he's made, God's response is to say, have it your way. Have it your way. It is to give them over. It is to give us over. God, in effect, doesn't do it. Look, you read the scriptures and you look at this enormous cross behind me. You understand that God doesn't say this with bitterness. He is a God of grace and favor. He is a God of limitless mercy. You cannot read the scriptures. You cannot consider the gospel of Christ and conclude from the scriptures and from that gospel that God does this giving over in any way other than with a heart that is breaking. But God's response to us when we, when we would say to him, we would prefer to have life without you, the source of life. We would prefer to seek joy apart from the source of joy. We would prefer to seek happiness apart from 
the infinite personal God who is really there and who is the only place of true happiness to be found anywhere in the whole of the universe because he is eternally happy within himself, eternally joyful within himself. When we say we'd rather do it without you, he gives us over to our desire. And the result of that is that life is gutted of life. Life is gutted of life. Life is no longer life. Life becomes death. And that's the picture that emerges here. Now, let me just remind you that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He is thrilled to preach the good news of the gospel. We're going to come to that toward the end of this thing. He is thrilled to preach the good news of the gospel because he knows from his own heart and his own experience what the gospel can do to restore, to renovate, to change, to free people who have been gutted of life because they have chosen to seek life apart from the God who alone is life. And again, the picture that emerges here is a picture of sadness. And what I want you to see through this, as we look at it again, we're looking at it a second time, but focusing particularly on this, I want you to see the destruction, the destruction that results from God giving us over to what it is that we want. I want you to see the devolution, the disintegration, the deterioration that results when God responds to us and gives us what we want. It begins in verses 18 to 23, actually. And specifically, verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Exchanged the glory of God. Here's the point. This is the point here. Human beings are made to worship. They are made to worship. Verse 21, Paul says, we didn't honor God. Though they knew God, they didn't honor God. We are made to honor something. We are made to worship something. We are made to bow before something. We will always bow before something. We will always worship something. And the bottom line is, this is the interesting thing. The bottom line is the thing before which we bow, the thing that we worship, frankly, simply, bottom line, is the thing from which we seek the love, the joy, the happiness, the peace that our hearts are made for. We are made to worship. We are incapable of living without worship. But if you distill it down and you think about it, if we will not worship the one true God, we will erect something in his place and we will worship that thing because that thing is the thing from which we seek love, joy, happiness, contentment, peace, assurance, whatever it is that we might think will bring us that love, joy, and happiness we will worship. Now, Paul mentions images in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God, the immortal God who is invisible to us, who cannot be seen to us, whose handiwork is all around us, 
but who himself cannot be seen by us. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's a strange disintegration and deterioration from the one true God to things that are made of wood and of stone. It it really is rather strange, isn't it? Isaiah talks about this in his prophecy, that people would actually take a block of wood or a block of stone and work on it, hammer it, chisel it, file it, and then sweep up the fragments from the stone or the fragments from the block of wood and then set it up on a mantle someplace or on a pedestal someplace and having created the thing, believing that that is the thing from which they will derive true happiness and peace and contentment, this thing that they have made, they would then bow down and worship. Isn't that a peculiar image? That's the image that Paul sort of has conveyed here for in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man or resembling birds and animals and reptiles. And you say to yourself, rightly, I trust, well, that's not me. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't fashion things of wood or of stone and put them on a pedestal and bow down before them and worship them. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you don't do that. But here's what I suspect you do do. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one in the room who does this. I don't think so. Here's what we do tend to do. We do tend to create other kinds of idols. We do tend to create other things, imagine other things, expect, if you will, other things to do for us what God alone can do. And if, if you think that I'm crazy about this, let me put it to you this way. Ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. Be honest with yourself. What is it that I must have without which... I cannot survive. What is it that I must have without which I can't live? What is it that I must have without which I can't be secure? I can't be safe. I can't be happy. I can't know joy. I can't know peace. What is it that I must have in order to know life? Is it the perfect body? A lot of us have given up on that one. But a lot of us haven't. Is it a husband? A wife? Is it a bank account? Look, is it a particular person in the Oval Office? Is it the, the agenda of a particular political party? I must have this. If I have this then my world will be safe. Then I will be secure in my world. You see where we are? If we're not there, we're right on the cusp of erecting an invisible but very real little God in the place of the one true God who alone keeps me secure, safe, is the source of life and happiness and peace. So you have to be very careful. Anything that takes the place of the one true God who is alone life and joy. Anything 
that you say to yourself, I can't live without this. What is it? Is it maybe it's peace. Maybe like me, you hate conflict. The prospect of conflict drives you crazy. Drives you under the covers. It can be a variety of things. In fact, it can be virtually anything. Anything that is erected in my heart and from which I seek those things which God alone can give becomes a little God in the place of the one true God. And that's where it starts. We are made to worship things. We are made to worship the one true God. That is the thing we are made to worship, and we cannot help but worship. And so we will worship something. But you know what happens? And this is where you see the devolution, the disintegration, the deterioration through this passage. You know, you fix your heart on one thing. Your heart gets attached to one thing. And it doesn't satisfy, does it? I, years ago, 25 years ago, I met this football player. His name was Zenon Andrusician. He played football in the Canadian Football League. He was wooed away from the Canadian Football League by the now defunct Tampa Bay Bandits. You remember them from way back a long time ago? He was a kicker. And he made millions of dollars kicking a football. And in one year, he bought 17 sports cars, like Ferraris and that kind of stuff. He'd buy, now, 17 in one year, and he bought them in succession. Do the math. You can do the math. That's one every three weeks. 17 sports cars in one year. He'd drive it for a couple of days. It was boring. So he'd take it back to the the lot, you know, the, the sports car lot, and he'd trade it in on another one. He'd drive it for three weeks, and it was boring. Get another one. Drive it for three. You see what's happening? His heart gets attached to something. His heart was not made to be satisfied by that thing. And so it doesn't satisfy him, but he thinks that a better sports car will, so he trades it in and gets another one. People do that with wives. People do that with houses. People do that with clothes. But they don't satisfy. So you see what happens? We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We look to something that can't satisfy us other than God. It doesn't satisfy us. It won't. It can't. And so we look elsewhere. And so it moves from worship, the worship of little gods that cannot do for us what they promise they will do for us, to all kinds of impurities, verse 24. Having rejected God, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What Paul's describing here in these verses is garden variety, generic, general sexual immorality. That's that's what he's describing. He's describing the 1960s, (laughs) which was really... And trust me, if you want to read something on this, read David Halberstam's book, The 50s. The 60s was nothing more than the 50s and the 40s unmasked, disrobed. Let me just say this. Donna Reed never existed. Leave it to Beaver never existed. It's a mask. The 60s, the advocacy 
the elimination of all boundaries and all rules, the free love thing, the thing that was out in the open was simply the 40s and the 50s enlarged, uncovered, men and women. In effect, in effect, worshiping one another's bodies, seeking from bodies a joy, a contentment, a happiness, a security, a safety that God alone can provide. That's what's being described in verses 24 and 25. General deterioration, disorientation, disintegration in the institution that is at the center of human life and existence. And, and that's why Paul focuses on it. You ask, you know, is Paul just some sort of pharisaical prude? Why does he talk about sexuality in these verses? When he's, when he's talking about these things, why does he talk about sexuality? He could talk about a whole lot of things. Isn't pride, isn't hubris the great sin that gives birth to all the other sins? Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Why does Paul focus on this? I'll tell you why. This is a sermon in itself. Two or three sermons. Because... The institution of marriage is at the center of human society, number one. Number two, the institution of marriage and the union that exists between a husband and a wife is expressive of the union that exists among the persons of the Godhead and the prospect that one of the members of the Godhead could delight in something other than someone other than the other members of the, of the Godhead is simply unthinkable. And so you look to the place that would best describe what it looks like when human society is eroded as a result of being removed from God and you look to that institution which is at the center of human society, which is expressive of the union that exists between the person among the persons of the Godhead. And then thirdly, Paul understands that it is marital fidelity which God uses throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, to describe God's relationship to his people. He focuses on this because this is what is at the center of human society. It is what is at the center, if you will, of theology. This mystical union, he calls it in Ephesians 5, this mystical union that exists between Christ and his church. It's a marriage, a union. This, this union, this mysterious union that exists among the persons of the Godhead, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Somehow marriage is expressive of that reality. And you want to focus on a particular place that would show the unraveling, the disintegration, the deterioration of human society, which is to be expressive of the divine society. And this is what you would focus on because there isn't anything else in the whole of Scripture in the whole of human experience that better shows what life begins to look like when people remove themselves and cut themselves off from the source of life who is God himself. This is what it begins to look like. And then it progresses. That doesn't satisfy worshiping images, seeking what only God can give in images. That doesn't work. Seeking what only God can give in rampant 
irrespective of institution, irrespective of person, sexual involvement outside the bonds of marriage. That doesn't work. And so God then gives them over, verses 26 and following, to what is against nature, he says. Contrary to nature, verse 26. And that is women exchanging sexual relations with women and men exchanging sexual relations with men. Further deterioration. Terrifies me to talk about this, terrifies me to preach this, terrifies me for us to think about this because it is so politically incorrect. It's so politically incorrect. And yet this is what we're seeing in this passage, the progressive deterioration in an individual life or in human society. As that deterioration takes over, these are the kinds of things that begin to emerge. But don't lose sight, facts. Don't don't lose sight, folks, of where Paul ends in verses 28 and following. It's so easy for us. It's so easy for us to stop at the end of verse 27. It's it's so easy for us to think that homosexuality is the nadir, is the bottom, that, that people receiving in their bodies the due penalty for their error is the bottom of this descent. But let me just remind you again that it goes a step further in verses 28 and following. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. When a society reaches the real nadir, the real bottom, it is covetousness that is characteristic of that bottom. It is a polite sin that is characteristic of that bottom. You know, the difference between polite sins and impolite. Look, I, I haven't, okay? I haven't. If I tell you that I have an affair going on, how do you respond? I mean, you want my head? You want to lop it off? If I tell you that I'm covetous, that I'm not satisfied with what God has given me in his providence, which is infinitely more than he has given to most people who live on this planet. You don't want my head. Why? Because that's a polite sin. That's an okay thing. Right? But you see, a society that is unraveled, an individual life that is unraveled, where God has been moved to the periphery, where God is no longer the central consideration in all of life, is a life that becomes a covetous life. God is gone as the source of contentment and joy and peace and hope. So what you have that I don't have is now the God that I think will make me happy. Covetousness, malice, full of envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. 
deceit. You know, what is deceitfulness? It's just, it's being untruthful. It's being untruthful. Look, look can you imagine a society? Do you all know who Allen Iverson is or any NBA basketball player? You know who Allen Iverson is, right? He's an NBA basketball player. Pick an NBA basketball player. Doesn't matter who he is. Can you imagine an NBA basketball player driving into the lane, shooting the basket, being hacked on the arm, or apparently hacked on the arm, but the defender didn't hack him on the arm. He actually blocked the shot, but the official called a foul on the defensive player who blocked the shot. But can you imagine a world in which the offensive player goes over to the referee and says, he didn't foul me. It was a clean block. You realize we have referees to regulate these things because people are inherently deceitful? When a society deteriorates, it is deceit that begins to characterize the whole of doing life. We've got rules for rules for rules for rules. We've got regulations for regulations for regulations because regulations can't regulate a deceitful heart. Right? It's, I mean, there's deceit, there's pride, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness. I've said this before, kids, duck, duck disobedient to parents. An individual life that is unraveled, a society that is unraveled, these are the kinds of things that characterize it. And the final step of it is in the last verse, verse 32. We know that these things are wrong. The guy who drives the lane, whose shot is cleanly blocked, the official blows the whistle. He knows that the right thing is to go to the official and say it was a clean block. He knows that the wrong thing is to engage in deceit. But he not only engages in deceit, he encourages others to do it as well. That's where we are in Paul's argument to the Romans. The progressive deterioration, dissolution, devolution of human society. And here's what's going on, I think. You've got to remember, as I said before, that Paul is writing to people who live in Rome. I know this is, you know, this is long, okay? This is long, this particular part of it. Paul is writing to people in Rome. He's writing as a pastor. He's writing as somebody who wants to go to Rome. He can't wait to get to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel in Rome because he knows the gospel is the only hope that an individual life has, that a society has in the midst of this devolution, deterioration, and disintegration. And as he writes to these Romans, basically what he's doing is inviting the Romans to take a look around. Look at your society. Look at the world in which you live. This is Rome. Edward Gibbon the historian who chronicled the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, wrote in that multi-volume history, there has been no happier nor more prosperous period in all of human history than this period. Really? Really? For whom? For whom? For everybody? I don't think so. I mean, this is, this is the society in which the three central entertainment 
features of the society were the theater, the circus, and the arena. (laughs) And the theater in Rome was not Shakespeare, trust me. The theater in Rome and in Roman society would make a sailor blush. The theater in Rome would compete with what is trafficked on the Internet. That's what the theater was in Roman society. Did anybody ever raise the question in human society, what is this doing to women? What is this doing to our kids? They didn't care. It's the theater. The circus. Historians will tell you that the sense of well-being in cities the sense of well-being, the, the emotional rising and falling of entire cities depended upon the success or failure of their team. You know, the chariot races and the other games that were held in the circus, if the home team won, the citizens were thrilled. If the home team had a quarterback who suffered a concussion and was in the hospital for a few days, and the national championship hopes were probably dashed. Despair sets in. Sorry, Gator fans. The rising and falling of cities had to do with success in the circus. And then there's the arena where the gladiatorial events took place, the literal fight to the death, slaves, criminals, other miscreants who were given swords and all kinds of weapons released into these arenas to kill, literally to kill one another, to lop one another's heads off, to sever limbs from bodies with tens of thousands of people rising in cheers witnessing the destruction of human beings. And then, of course, there were the other events in the arena, the releasing of wild animals to rip and tear the flesh of helpless human beings. You read it again. There has been no happier nor more prosperous period in all of human history than this period. Really? Really? What Paul is inviting people to do is, as as he writes these words and as this letter goes to the Romans, what he's inviting these people to do is take a look around, and I can imagine Paul saying to folks living in Rome, how's it working for you? How is it working for you? How is it working for you to be cut off from God who alone is the source of life and order and peace and contentment? How is it working for you to be cut off from the source of joy and contentment and peace and true meaning and significance in life? How is it working? Go to the circus, go to the theater, go to the arena. How is it working for you? You see, it's against that backdrop that the Apostle Paul seeks to communicate this gospel and say to these Roman Christians and anybody else who will listen, look, here's the deal, folks. Here's the deal. And this is the second thing. There is reason for hope. There is a prospect for hope. This is going back to the beginning, the great announcement. Here's the deal, folks. 
You've got an emperor in Rome. This is the, this is the way he wants to order life. This is the way he wants life to be organized. You've got a society that is pulling people apart, where slavery is encouraged, where the oppression and victimization of women is a happy thing. You've got a king like that. Let me tell you about another king who wants to create a new humanity, who wants to reorder life, who wants to restore life, who wants to bring big dignity back to human existence. Let me tell you about the promised son who comes to inaugurate a different kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why Paul wants to preach it. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to tell people about this. He's asking them, how is it working for you? And let me tell you that there is hope. There is hope in another king who comes to inaugurate another kingdom who forgives and frees. Remember the two things I said at the beginning? The twofold problem? What's the twofold problem? Guilt before God and bondage and sin. Jesus comes to address the twofold problem. Guilt, that's forgiveness. The stuff we read about, the stuff we've already prayed this morning, to be able to offload it, unload it, get rid of it, because he took it upon himself. And freedom from bondage reordering life, reconstructing life, remaking life. So there's a picture of sadness. There's a prospect of hope that is in the gospel of Jesus. And then there's a new pattern for ministry. And I've already said this, and it's really significant and important, okay? Maybe I'll preach another sermon about this. A new pattern for ministry. What's the new pattern for ministry? I want to go to Rome where all of this stuff is taking place. I want to go there. I want to go there. I don't want to withdraw from it. I don't want to isolate myself from it. I want to walk into it. I had a conversation on the beach Saturday morning. Barb and I do this every Saturday morning. Most of you know this. Take a cup of coffee, 7.30, 8 o'clock. Nobody's there. We go for a walk on the beach. I saw a friend who introduced me to a friend of his. His friend had moved here to Indian River County 12, 15 years ago. He had lived in Palm Beach County. He would lived in Fort Lauderdale. Is that Palm Beach County? Where is that? Where, where is it? Tell me where it is. Broward. He lived in Broward County. Moved up here 12, 13 years ago. I said, oh, really? Why would you move? Bottom line. Bottom line. I didn't like who was moving into my neighborhood People with the wrong sexual orientation were moving into my neighborhood. When I moved there in 1972, please, folks, don't get mad at me for this. Don't get mad at me for this. I'm just I'm trying to describe for you a pattern of ministry that I want for myself and I want for us and that I believe was present in the heart of Paul. When I moved to Broward County, it was 74% Republican. But then the liberals started moving in. And when the liberals moved in, I decided it was time for me to move out. This is a guy who, who read for me all of his credentials as a Christian, the Christian school his kids had attended, the board of the Christian school that he had served on, the church where he had been a member. When they started moving in, 
it was time for me to move out. Now, guys, I'm not picking a fight. After that conversation, I was hurt, heartbroken, and frankly, angry. And I thought about those little bracelets that people used to wear. Maybe they still do. WWJD, what would Jesus do? thought about what Paul did. I think about what Paul did. What did Paul want to do? He wanted to move in. He wanted to move in precisely to those places where the brokenness and the devastation and the devolution were the greatest. That's where he wanted to go. And I thought, WWJD. No, WDJD. What did Jesus do? Folks, He moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. He came to my wickedness. He came to my ungodliness. He came to my unrighteousness. He didn't stay in the security of his father's presence. He didn't stay at the right hand of glory. He moved in. He moved in. Why did he move in? He moved in, moved in to redeem, to deliver, to restore. And that's what he's done. And that's what he calls upon us to do. He entrusts us with this gospel of hope so that we, having been entrusted with it, can move in, can move into the mess, can move into the brokenness, can move into the lowest places where the dissolution is the greatest to herald the hope of forgiveness and freedom, reconstruction, the ordering of life in a way that is life-giving. We can herald all of these things because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did. So we're done with chapter one. We really are. We're moving on to chapter two. But here's what you see. You see a picture of sadness, but you see the prospect of hope And you see a pattern for ministry. God help us. Let's pray. And thanks for your patience. Lord, please be with us. Please encourage us. Please give us your grace. Please help us to know where to go and when to go. Please help us to know how to get there. Please give us courage to do it. Please provide us with the resources for it. But God, may this gospel of hope, restoration, may this gospel sound forth and be lived forth from this church, from us, out into this community and to the world for the praise of the glorious name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number 320. We'll sing just the first and the last verses. Number 320.